Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. This episode has kind of a lung and respiratory vibe to it. We're going to start with a discussion of children requiring long-term mechanical ventilation. This may be an area that is unfamiliar to some of you, so I think it's important to focus on if it's something you haven't experienced during your time as a pediatric PT. Lots of good knowledge coming at you. By definition, an individual is considered to be a long-term ventilator user if mechanical ventilation is required for use for more than 21 days. For the child dependent on long-term mechanical ventilation, goals include minimizing impairments, reducing the incidence of activity limitations, and maximizing participation in home and school. Do you hear the ICF model there? The highest percentage of children requiring mechanical ventilation is actually no longer due to the chronic lung disease associated with premature birth, but rather it is the result of congenital and neurological disorders and neuromuscular diseases. Adequate respiratory function requires the effective exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide with an organ for gas exchange, a pump mechanism, and the neural control centers for breathing in the brain. Chronic respiratory failure is the result of an uncorrectable imbalance in the respiratory system in which a failure of the exchange of oxygen occurs within the alveoli, along with failure of the muscles required to expand the lungs or failure of the brain centers controlling respiration. In this situation, ventilatory muscle power and central respiratory drive are inadequate to overcome the respiratory load. Generally, the causes of chronic respiratory insufficiency have been grouped into three categories. One, central dysregulation of breathing. So these are things like ischemic encephalopathy, TBI, or spinal cord injury. Two, conditions that affect the lungs, lung parenchyma, and airway. These are things like bronchopulmonary dysplasia or tracheobronchomalacia. Third, diseases of the chest wall that affect the respiratory pump, like spinal muscle atrophy or scoliosis. There is a table on page 601 of Campbell's fifth edition that outlines all of the common pathophysiologic mechanisms separated into the categories I just discussed. Mechanical ventilation is the final common treatment approach for respiratory failure and is designed to assist with or substitute respiratory function. The optimal ventilator settings for each patient are determined by the patient's metabolic requirements, 
respiratory drive, and pulmonary mechanics. The type of mechanical ventilation and the various parameters chosen are going to depend on many factors, including age and the underlying disease process that precipitated ventilatory failure. Some specific numbers to have in mind. Ventilators are usually adjusted to maintain an O2 saturation of greater than 95% and a CO2 tension within 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury. Currently, pediatric ventilation approaches utilize protective strategies to avoid atelectotrauma and lung overdistension through the use of maximal alveolar pressures, minimal positive end expiratory pressure, and permissive hypercampnia. Positive pressure ventilation, or PPV, is the most commonly used assisted ventilation strategy and can be delivered using non-invasive approaches as well as invasive approaches. Most often, PPV is delivered invasively using an endotracheal tube or a tracheostomy tube with pressurized gas delivered into the airways and ventilator circuit during inspiration until the ventilator breath is determined. As the airway pressure drops to zero, elastic recoil of the chest accomplishes passive exhalation by pushing the tidal volume out. PPV can be broadly classified as pressure limited or volume limited. The description indicating the method used to switch from the inspiratory phase to the expiratory phase with preset limits in place. Long-term invasive PPV requires a tracheostomy. There is a high risk of secondary lung injury with a long-term PPV. PPV may be accomplished non-invasively via a face mask using continuous positive airway pressure, or CPAP, or bi-level positive airway pressure, which is BiPAP. CPAP applies continuous distending pressure to the alveoli throughout the respiratory cycle, keeping the alveoli partially inflated so that they may expand more easily with each cycle and can be delivered nasally. BiPAP uses cycling variations between two CPAP levels, allowing spontaneous breathing during every ventilatory phase, and it has been used effectively to wean children from long-term mechanical ventilation. BiPAP provides airway pressure during inspiration and an expiratory pressure to maintain lung expansion during expiration. So let's quickly review. CPAP is a single airway pressure delivered throughout the respiratory cycle, and BiPAP provides airway pressure during inspiration and an expiratory pressure to maintain lung expansion during expiration. Another non-invasive strategy is negative pressure ventilation. This provides a pressure gradient, which is established by creating a negative pressure around the person's entire body during inspiration, causing air to enter the lungs. The typical interface is a customized chest shell wrap or tank ventilator. A major advantage of the NPV is that it avoids or delays the need for a tracheostomy and ventilation is not interrupted when secretions are suctioned. There is a photo of this in the book for reference. The primary consideration in weaning a child from a ventilator is whether a child is capable of maintaining adequate alveolar ventilation while breathing spontaneously. This requires adequate central nervous system regulation, respiratory muscle capacity to support the work required for breathing, 
and that the lungs and airway are not severely compromised by disease. No standard protocol exists at this time. In the critical care unit, the process of endotracheal extubation and ventilator weaning is often done by trial and error and dependent on when hypercampnia and hypoxia develop. During a time of weaning, the child's schedule of activities may need to be altered. Weaning can be a difficult task, both psychologically and physically. The prognosis can be enhanced by improvements in cardiorespiratory strength and endurance, adequate nutrition, and overall health. But muscular and respiratory fatigue should be avoided during weaning. We will end this chapter discussing a bit about physical therapy management. First and foremost, make sure you look at and memorize the chart on page 608 of Campbell. This is the chart for normal ranges of physiologic values. This is actually a smaller chart than I have seen elsewhere, so it feels a bit more manageable. It would be a great one to copy and put into your daily study guide. Normal values are very important. Because of prolonged periods of immobility or restricted activity in the early course of the disease, children on mechanical ventilation may demonstrate impairments such as sensory defensiveness, generalized weakness, and soft tissue or muscular tightness. They also just have less opportunities to practice, and they have limitations in the frequency and variability of their practice. So skill acquisition might just take a little bit longer. There are also secondary complications such as recurrent hypoxic episodes, recurrent infections, poor weight gain, and poor physical growth, which just is going to magnify all of these limitations. Additionally, if there are incidences of hypoxic or ischemic episodes, there may be neurological damage that as well, further limiting skill acquisition. A physical therapist needs to be aware of the pathophysiology of chronic respiratory failure, the physiologic conditions requiring mechanical ventilation, the parameters of the machines, the different types of mechanical ventilation, and the use of physiologic monitoring devices. Your patient may be medically stable, but the presence of an artificial airway creates a critical situation should it become dislodged or occluded. Also, the child may not communicate well, and it is your job to interpret signs of distress or a change in the physiologic parameters. This is why it's important to know normal or baseline values. You have to know if there's a significant change from those values to determine if there's a problem. Before any examination, the PT should confer with the child's caregiver to determine the child's current medical status in addition to baseline physiologic parameters. The PT should understand whether the ventilator is doing all of the work of breathing or whether it's assisting the child with the number or the depths of the breath. Therapists should be competent in observing the child for signs of respiratory distress, skin color changes indicative of hypoxia, and changes in respiratory rate, breathing pattern, symmetry of chest expansion, posture, and comfort. Some signs of respiratory distress, such as retractions, nasal flaring, expiratory grunting, and strider may not be evident with a child on mechanical ventilation. Children with long-term mechanical ventilation may associate movement with negative consequences, such as fatigue, hypoxia, and pain, which limits their motivation to be active. A major goal of the physical therapist in the management of a child who is dependent on mechanical ventilation should be secondary prevention, that is, to prevent deprivation of sensory and motor experiences because of inactivity 
and the various sequelae that result from that deprivation. You need to consider things like airway clearance techniques. PTs may implement breathing strategies that include airway clearance, manual or mechanical techniques, positioning, and postural drainage. You also need to be aware of assistive technology, things to minimize the caregiver dependence and to help children attain functional skills and mobility. You might use biophysical agents or modalities just like we use in any other part of physical therapy, things like biofeedback or taping or e-stem. You might need to look at their integument and do anything with repair and protection techniques. Of specific concern is the skin around the tracheostomy, which is at a very high risk for breakdown due to all of the moisture and tubing and friction that occurs in that area. You may use manual therapy techniques, motor function training, and just general therapeutic exercises. A lot of the things you would do with any other kid who was not on mechanical ventilation. Of note, the normal response to exercise is an increase in heart rate, followed by a return to baseline. Ventilation also increases linearly with the metabolic rate until approximately 60% of oxygen consumption, at which time it increases more rapidly. This is also covered in chapter six of Campbell, but these relationships and other physiological processes that support adequate ventilation and perfusion during exercise are altered in conditions of lung disease. Exercise is usually cardiac limited, but in individuals with chronic lung disease, exercise may be ventilator limited. You will likely be limited in your treatments due to constraints of the ventilator, tubing, etc. But for children of all ages, upright positioning and sitting or standing is important for physiological functions and bone density, and it should be encouraged. Like most of our condition-specific discussions, in the end, our PT management is actually very similar. We have similar desired outcomes, including maximizing children's mobility, self-care, and participation. Some interventions may be medically related, like percussion or postural drainage, but a major focus is to integrate goals into everyday activities and support the family in managing the child's health and development. We are moving on next to cystic fibrosis, which I will mostly refer to now on as CF. The book only has one chapter on CF, so a few other resources that we used were the expert consult case studies from the book, the case files book, and the Utrecht article. We can link all of these in the show notes. CF is a disorder of exocrine gland function, influencing the respiratory system, pancreas, reproductive organs, and sweat glands. It is an autosomal recessive disorder. Those persons with one copy of the CF gene are termed heterozygous carriers and are not positive for CF, but those with two copies of the CF gene will present with the condition. According to the book, 45% of diagnosed cases are over the age of 18, so it is no longer thought of as a childhood disease. The mean predicted age of survival for individuals with CF is 41.1 years old. The CF gene leads to absent or malfunctioning of the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator, or the CFTR protein, which results in abnormal chloride conductance on the epithelial cell. The main organ systems affected are the respiratory system and the GI system, 
with the reproductive system, sinuses, and sweat glands also being affected. In the respiratory system, there tends to be thick secretions leading to progressive airway obstruction, secondary infection by opportunistic bacteria, and subsequent bronchiostasis and irreversible airway damage. Respiratory failure accounts for 95% of the mortality rate in CF. In the GI system, viscous secretions are also present in the pancreatic duct in utero. Other complications include hepatobiliary disease, infertility, chronic panocytosis, clubbing of the fingers and toes, and osteopenia. For those with CF, a history of repeated respiratory tract infection, recurrent bronchiolitis, and pneumonia may be reported. In 80% of newly diagnosed cases, no family history of CF is known. A diagnosis is made if the patient has one or more clinical features of the disease, a history of CF in a sibling, a positive newborn screening test, plus laboratory evidence of an abnormality of the CFTR gene or protein. An elevated level of sodium chloride in the sweat has been the principal diagnostic indicator for more than 50 years. Medical management of CF includes being followed by a CF clinic, antibiotic therapy, early immunization, effective airway clearing techniques, bronchodilators and inhaled steroids, nebulization, and CFTR replacement therapy. The book describes all of the medical management in great detail, so definitely take a look at that. One thing to note with CF is that the greatest predictor of mortality is the FEV1 level. FEV1 of less than 30% of predictive value had two-year mortality rates of greater than 50%. Lung transplantation is also a common treatment for those with CF. Double lung transplantation is the most common. The lung with the worst pulmonary function is replaced first, and then the second lung is replaced. Guidelines for listing a patient with CF for lung transplantation include FEV1 of 30% of predicted or rapidly declining lung function. A referral must be made early and a preoperative program of physical conditioning is recommended. The book mentions that in one study, it found that pediatric lung transplant candidates that are ambulatory prior to transplant and able to walk greater than 229 to 305 meters during a six minute walk test have better outcomes postoperatively. Upon examination, some postural abnormalities that one may see in a child with CF include elevation of the shoulders, protracted scapulae, and increased anterior posterior diameter of the chest. Using accessory muscles for breathing is common. Bluish nail beds and clubbing of the digits may also be seen. Palpation of the chest wall for excursion and for tactile fremitus may reveal atelectasis, pneumothorax, or large airway secretions. One may hear rails or crackles during auscultation. 
The goal of treatment is prevention of the cascade of wasting precipitated by reduced lung function, increased energy expenditure, decreased intake due to poor appetite, and increased losses due to malabsorption. A poor prognosis may be indicated by multiple organ involvement, abnormal chest radiograph one year after diagnosis, colonization of multiple organisms in the sputum, a fall off from typical growth, and recurrent hemotysis. Let's move on to physical therapy intervention strategies. For infants, the physical therapist should first support the family and provide family education. Parents should be reassured that their child is able to participate in everyday life like any typically developing child. Parents should be encouraged to position their infant following developmental milestones to encourage chest mobility, leg strengthening, and endurance training. Airway clearance techniques are also important to implement. Primary airway clearance techniques are postural drainage, percussion, and vibration. Assisted autogenic drainage, a baby PEEP mask or PEP mask, and mobility exercises are shown to be beneficial. GERD is also common in babies with CF. Physical therapy sessions should be timed around eating schedules to limit GERD if the child is suffering from this. Postural drainage techniques should also be evaluated if the child has GERD. More than 75% of children with CF are diagnosed by their second birthday. The physical therapist should stress the importance of incorporating an active lifestyle into family dynamic and stressing the importance of treatments. Both adherence to CF therapies is more likely in children whose parents strongly believe that the treatments are necessary. For exercise testing, two protocols used frequently are the Godfrey Cycle Protocol and the Bruce Treadmill Protocol. Other exercise tests include field walking tests, shuttle walking tests, and the three-minute step test. The goal of physical therapy in a young child includes improvement of exercise tolerance with continued attention to secretion clearance techniques. There are a variety of airway clearance techniques that one can utilize. Percussion and postural drainage have been criticized as they take a long time. Now we're going to go over some of the different types of airway clearance techniques. Postural drainage uses gravity to help move mucus from the lungs up to the throat. The person lies or sits in various positions so the part of the lung to be drained is as high as possible. That part of the lung is drained then using percussion, vibration, and gravity. Percussion or clapping by the caregiver on the chest wall over the part of the lung to be drained helps move the mucus into larger airways. Vibration gently shakes the mucus into larger airways. Following those different techniques to loosen up the mucus, huffing is a type of forced expiration with a similar mechanism to coughing. Forced expiratory technique employs forceful expirations combined with an open glottis, as in huffing, interspersed with controlled breathing at mid to low lung volumes. Positive expiratory pressure, or PEEP, P -E -P, is what it's shown in the book, 
has been shown to be as effective as traditional cardiopulmonary PT, both for chronic stages of CF and during an acute exacerbation of pulmonary complications. This flow-regulated technique aims to temporarily increase the functional residual capacity to allow the tidal volumes to be above the opening volume of obstructive alveoli. Transmural pressure generated by maintaining positive pressure throughout the expiration phase is thought to allow airway to reach some obstructive alveoli through use of collateral airway channels. Airways are splinted open through the maintenance of PEEP, thereby facilitating movement of peripheral secretions towards central airways. It usually consists of diaphragmatic and purse-slip breathing, followed by 10 to 15 slightly larger than tidal volume breaths into the mouthpiece or mask, after which huffing and coughing are performed. The steps are repeated five to six times for a total of 15 to 20 minutes of airway clearance. Contraindications for PEEP include undrained pneumothorax and frank hemotysis. Oscillating PEEP was developed to generate a controlled oscillating positive pressure and interruptions to airflow during expiration through a handheld device. Oscillating PEEP has been shown to be as effective as other commonly practiced airway clearance techniques. Bubble PEEP is a form of oscillating PEEP that can be used in young children. Using a container of water and tubing, bubbles are created in the water by expiring through the tubing, creating oscillations into the airways. Contraindications to oscillating PEEP are frank hemotysis and an undrained pneumothorax and precautions should be taken in individuals with increased intracranial pressure, hemodynamic instability, recent facial or oral surgery, acute sinusitis, or middle ear pathology. Autogenic drainage requires one to be focused and control both inspiratory and expiratory airflow. There are three phases, to unstick the mucus, to collect the mucus, and evacuate the mucus. Each phase should take two to three minutes to complete. Completing all three phases, or one cycle, should take about six to nine minutes to complete. Repeat the cycle until they have cleared their lungs as much as possible, which should take between 20 and 45 minutes. If you're confused on any of these different types of airway clearance techniques, definitely go on to YouTube because YouTube has some good videos of them so you can kind of see what they look like. Physical activity is also important to implement. According to the Utrecht article, aerobic conditioning for three to five months suggests that VO2 max, endurance of respiratory muscles, and pulmonary function all showed improvement. Clinical benefits in management of the disease have been reported. Postural exercises have also been shown to be beneficial. As a child progresses into adolescence and adulthood, promoting self-efficacy with alternative methods of treatment is important. Maintenance of proper posture and physical activity is also extremely important. According to Campbell, increased habitual physical activity of 17 minutes per day is feasible and is associated with slower rate of decline in FEV1. 
Other things to be on the lookout for include nutritional deficiencies and urinary incontinence. Energy conservation techniques should be taught as the child ages, including diaphragmatic purse-slip breathing and assuming positions that relieve breathlessness. One example is leaning against the wall or leaning forward in a chair. Okay, so we're going to finish up this episode today by going over asthma, a very common pediatric diagnosis. One in 10 children have asthma. Asthma is a pulmonary disease with recurring symptoms that are variable in presentation. Children with asthma will show three significant characteristics. One, airway inflammation. Two, airway obstruction that is often reversible, either spontaneously or with pharmacologic intervention. And three, bronchial hyperresponsiveness to stimuli. Asthma is a disease of both the large and the small airways and recurrent episodes of shortness of breath, wheezing, chest tightness, and coughing. Episodes can be triggered by extrinsic allergic stimuli like pollen, mold, animal dander, cigarette smoke, food, drugs, dust, and or intrinsic non-allergenic things like viral infections, inhalation of irritating substances, exercise, or emotional stress. The hyper-responsiveness to stimuli causes an inflammatory response. Inflammation has been identified as a central component of asthma and is likely the primary contributor to airway remodeling leading to chronic inflammation. The actual structural change may make the airways less responsive over time to medication. Some classic signs of asthma include wheezing and ronchi. Usually it is worse at night or early in the morning hyperexpansion of the thorax, increased accessory muscle breathing, postural changes, increased nasal secretions, mucosal nasal polyps, darkened areas under the eyes, and evidence of skin reactions are all signs that you may see on a physical exam. With an acute asthma attack, you may see increased respiratory rate, expiratory grunting, intercostal muscle retractions, and nasal flaring alteration in inspiration, expiration rates, and coughing. In very severe cases, you may see signs of oxygen desaturation, like bluish color of the lips and nails. The classification of asthma is by age and by clinical symptoms. It is classified as one, intermittent or persistent, two, mild persistent, three, moderate persistent, and four, severe persistent. Pulmonary function tests, which we've talked about previously, are a frequently used measure of lung function. Pulmonary function tests are used for children with asthma to determine the location and degree of the respiratory impairment, and also to see how well the medications work to reverse the bronchoconstriction. Pulmonary function test measurements are typically used to reveal one or more of the following, a decreased force vital capacity, a decreased forced expiration during the first second of FVC, decreased forced expiratory volume compared with forced vital capacity, decreased peak expiratory flow rates because of the airway obstruction in the large and small airways, forced expiratory flow during 25 to 75% of the FVC because of airway obstruction in the small airways, Increased residual volume, so not being able to get all of the air out. 
and increased functional residual capacity because of all of that air being trapped. Asthma is an obstructive lung disease, meaning the inflamed airways trap the air in the distal segments, making it hard for the patient to exhale. So we expect to see expiratory flow such as FEV1 and PEFR low. However, they may also have difficulty inhaling because of the swelling and the mucus. So that difficulty inhaling is a little bit more like a restrictive lung disease. There is a chart on page 640 in Campbell's fifth edition that outlines the NIH classification of asthma severity. We would definitely suggest spending some time reviewing this chart just to make sure you know how to classify asthma. It is speculated that children born preterm who develop asthma are at a higher risk for developing emphysema-like conditions in middle age. By adolescence, most symptoms usually decrease, but some people may still have impairments in respiratory growth and development. Moving on to medical management, acute treatment is focused on reversing that bronchoconstriction. So this is usually accomplished with a bronchodilator medication. Bronchodilators, for example, albuterol is a bronchodilator. They are short-acting beta-2 agonists, so they're called SABAs, S-A-B-A-S. These do not control asthma, but are used to manage an acute attack, or they may be used purposely before a known trigger. So if you know you have exercise-induced asthma, you might take this before you start exercising. If an asthma attack is severe, there is a chance you could develop status asthmaticus. This is a medical emergency, and if it happens during a treatment session, the therapist should stop treatment and seek medical attention. The long-term goals for asthma are as follows. Prevent chronic and troublesome symptoms. Maintain pulmonary function and activity level. Prevent recurrent exacerbations. Minimize the need for emergency room visits or hospitalizations. Provide optimal pharmacotherapy and meet the patient's and family's expectations and satisfaction. In order to accomplish these above goals, it's critical to manage the comorbidities that influence disease severity, such as allergens, environmental factors, response to exercise, GERD, sleep dysfunction, obesity, stress, depression, nutrition. Obviously, factors that can be easily modified should be addressed immediately. Research has repeatedly found poor health outcomes for children with poor adherence to their asthma treatment plans and are continually looking for ways to improve adherence. This is very similar to the CF population as well. Medications for long-term management are based on severity and age. Long-term control starts with managing the inflammatory component of asthma. Inhaled corticosteroids are the drug of choice across all age groups. The book mentions some other medications, but I really think just knowing the short-term bronchodilators and the long-term corticosteroids is probably the best place to start in terms of knowing the management. Most of the time, some of the heavier medications are used when symptoms are not well controlled using those inhaled corticosteroids. The overall goal of long-term asthma management is to find the medication or combination of medications that's going to stop that inflammatory process at an earlier point or prevent the presentation of asthma altogether. Asthma is a chronic condition and thus has an impact on the quality of life of the patient and their family. 
When developing a plan of care for children with asthma, PTs are encouraged to engage the child and family in conversations about health and wellness. We need to offer suggestions about how the child can safely participate in their preferred physical and social activities. The recommendations should support the importance of adherence to medical management and encourage the child's self-management. In terms of PT management, exercise programs have shown efficacy in improving endurance and decreasing asthmatic symptoms. With this, we need to find exercises that the child likes to do and is well-matched with their desired outcomes. The book directs you to an expert consult case related to asthma, where specific PT interventions will be discussed. This is my plug to review all of the expert consult case studies. These will definitely help you prepare for any case-based questions, and it's a great way for you to review after you've completed a chapter of content. They will help you use the knowledge that you just read in a more functional case-based way. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.